Hi, welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm Caleb, and I'm here with Adam, and I'm Daryl. And this week we're going to be talking about the last of the ecumenical councils. Ooh, oh. oh man. Hey, well you know, there's traditionally seven ecumenical councils. Unless you're a Roman Catholic, you'll talk about twenty-one councils. But um, seven ecum- ecumenical councils here for the for the East and the West together, uh, as it is used by by many of us. I'll put it that way. And uh, I know because we were focusing more on like the first seven ecumenical councils, even though there's in the church a lot more that go after it. It's usually my idea, what I've been told to do at least, okay. is to, for at least for my interest as an Anglican, I would say, that it goes by one canon, two testaments, okay. three creeds, okay. four general councils, five centuries uh, for the fathers. Wait, wait, how many councils? Four general councils. Okay. Or at least somewhere in there like that, or at least within the five centuries. So, I mean, we're taking on a few extra ones for my own opinion. No, I'm just kidding. Right. I'm, I'm interested <laughs> in all of it. But usually, like, why would we constrain to kind of like these seven only and not continue on to the rest of them? So that little uh, uh, maxim that you've got there is from the uh, the Caroline Divines. So they were the Anglican reformers, or the Anglican leaders, clergy, under the reigns of uh, King James and King Charles, and then King Charles II, okay? And uh, that's isn't that Lancelot Andrews who says that? 100%. It is indeed. I'm pretty it sure is. it is, yeah. I, I, he's one of my faves. He's talking about that because they're summing up the early centuries and the early doctrine, both the positive and the negative. How did they do what they did in those early centuries as a paradigm for the whole church? What we will see, even as we're discussing this, is once you get past the year 600, uh, into the 500s and past the year 600, the whole world is changing radically. Now, we don't want to create a discontinuity or a break with the first five centuries, but that's been, that's been very you know, typical, representative, in a positive way of majority Anglican thought. You'll have the, um, the progressive, and I don't know, I don't want to call them Anglicans, but you'll have the progressive Anglicans <laughs> who will say, you know, well, I just I have the Bible and I have church history, and now I'm I'm going to interpret both of those on the basis of the Zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. I can go into a whole thing on this, and I I don't want to do that today. Um, and then you get some more traditional, who I don't want to call them traditional Anglicans because that can mean like Anglicans who only want to abide by the the Reformation in 1530 through 1570 or something. Uh, and I don't, I don't mean that, but you've, get, you've got a whole other group of Anglican believers uh, who they would acknowledge all seven councils, and they would go for, and they would keep going through the East and the West both, and you would find these these fellows, you know, really loving the Council of Trent, which was a Roman Catholic um, council that they held in 1540s, 1540s to the 1560s. So you've got a you've got a pretty broad spectrum here. So what Lancelot Andrews is doing by referring to the first five centuries is basically saying, hey guys. Up until the time that Gregory the Great sends Augustine of Canterbury to England is our sweet spot, so to speak. Doesn't mean we discount the Middle Ages, hardly. So much is good in the medieval church, and we'll, we'll get to, to that another time. But this is these councils specifically, because right, we've got um, uh, Chalcedon, not ch, but k, Chalcedon in 451. We have the Second Council of Constantinople in 553. The Third Council of Constantinople, which is number six, in 680. And then the last one is in Nicaea. So this is the second Council of Nicaea in 787. 
Mm. Long way, long, long way out through history here. But everybody pretty much acknowledges these as the seven ecumenical councils for the whole church. And you'll find the Roman Catholics, the Orthodox churches, good, good chunk of Lutherans, and the majority Anglicans will affirm, will affirm all seven, but we will zero in on the first four because, as we'll see when we talk, start talking about Nicaea in a few minutes, we start to get into some other details that are um, worth discussing, you know. Well, I guess it's okay for me. Yes. I, I'll, I'll accept that answer. I okay, get. Thank you. Thank you, Caleb. Appreciate that. Oh, my. Well, let's get her started off with the, the Council of Chalcedon. Yes, Ca- Chalcedon, the Council of Chalcedon. <laughs> there's no, there's no ch uh, You'll hear that Chalcedon. Um, I, let, me, let me say this. I don't pretend to be a linguist here, uh, so I, I'm not going to say that I pronounce everything accurately all the time. I know that I don't. Sometimes I will mispronounce things because if you try to type it in the way it sounds, you're not going to find it. Yeah. You know, like we did with Vincent last week. Um, so, but this is, is, as much as I understand the ancient language, Chalcedon, Chalcedon. Well, I mean, I always try to feel superior, you know, oh, the oh, shortcomings okay. of others. That's do what do I you roll your R's and your L's too, depending upon the language that you're... Whenever I can get away with it. When you can, okay. Someone doesn't realize I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm right. kidding, of course. But That's good. We have in 451 this council that's called, and it's called by Marcion. He's a cool dude. Okay. That's the emperor at the time, right? Okay. And mainly the topic that kind of gets talked about is... Monophysitism? Mono, yeah, the monophysitism. Monophysite. The monophysite. Mono being one or singular. Right. Okay. And so the monophysite controversy was that Jesus uh, only had one nature. So let's go back, to the, let's go back to, to the first council of Nicaea. Let's go back to the first ecumenical council. And what did the church discern and make emphatic? The persons of the Trinity. Right. Right? And what did the church say? about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's three persons, but one, one being. God, yeah. yeah, one being, one essence, one usia, right? And that Jesus was one usia. He's the, he's the same usia with the, 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 the Word. I'm, let me clarify. The Word and the Father and the Spirit all have the same usia, the same, the same divine essence, but they're three persons. And that occupies the first two councils, Nicaea and then the first Council of Constantinople. Then when we come into the third council at Ephesus, they are insisting that he's fully God and he's fully man. And to, to, to bolster that and to deal with the big heretical challenge is the church insists that the innovation from Nestorius that Mary is not Theotokos, he says she's Christotokos, she, he's innovating doctrine by denigrating the Virgin Mary. So the church says no. She's Theotokos. Cyril of Alexandria actually composed a hymn to her that you can find right at that council that's, that's worth reading. But um, the council, th- those councils there are talking about those, those three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons, one essence, one being, one nature. Christ is fully God and fully man. So now here we are coming up to Chalcedon, which is only a few decades later. Um, you know, from, from Ephesus. This is 451. And the teaching that had developed was that Jesus only had one nature. Well, ha- monophysite. How can he only have one nature if he's God and man? Is he some other kind of creature? What is he? And he can't be a creature if he's God. 
And so you get a bunch of other teachers that are all kind of swirling around and how they're going to explain this. And so what the solution is, and, and this, let me say this, Caleb, anybody that's listening to this, we don't want you to get lost in the terms. So it might help if you jot down a couple notes and, 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 um, or even just look some of this up and, and you'll see how these things are spelled. And I think that'll help some people. The solution to the monophysite problem is the hypostatic union. That's a fancy term because we're the hypostatic, like the, the two natures are united. So Christ is 100% God and he's 100% man. But those two natures aren't two persons. So there's no divine person of the word and divine person Jesus of Nazareth. They're not two entities. There's only one singular one entity. And that one person is Jesus. But he has two different natures. It's a hypostatic union. And the church is able to settle this largely because of Leo, the bishop of Rome, Leo's tome. Um, and the people shout that Peter have spoken through Leo when his tome is read aloud because it's such a, a clarifying document for them. So this is what they're dealing with the Chalcedon. How many natures? How many persons? Automatically, you can kind of hear the collective sigh out there in the, the, the uh, podcast sphere. <sighs> Why does it matter? <laughs> Our entire concept of personhood legally that we have as Americans, as Westerners, our entire concept of personhood is built upon the debates and the discussions that the church had in these centuries about what it meant for God to be three persons with one being and for what Jesus, who he is, as one person with two natures. And I can't go into all the, 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 you know, the development of thought there, but to say that if the church wasn't having these discussions, then we wouldn't even have the legal freedoms that we do, the personal liberties that we have which are, are the conclusion, the, the outgrowth of these discussions. And now let's bring it back to theology more directly for a second. The doctrine of Jesus, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Jesus, directly correlate to our understanding of the church, the sacraments, and salvation itself. They go hand in glove. You can, we, can't, we, can't have one, we can't change one without changing the other. It kind of goes back to all that stuff we did a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago, on apostolic practices. When you change apostolic practice, you will change apostolic doctrine. When you deviate from these councils and the creeds that are a result of them, you will change the, doc the doctrine of the church. And in so doing, you end up in some kind of heresy. And I think you talk about this a lot um, during a lot of our classes and a lot of the different things that we do uh, in talking about the emphasis on that the natural and the physical yeah. matters and the spirit, the spiritual side Things about not that those are too separate. I don't mind because I know you're probably gonna sigh like I just <laughs> talked about that on Wednesday. Um, but I it, it's important because it shows that it, it gives a holistic view to reality and even the redemption of that reality and the things that we look at. Yes, yeah. You, you mentioned the first five centuries, Chalcedon is within that first five centuries for us, so we, we have a much stronger tie to Chalcedon than we do to second and third Constantinople, even the second council of Nicaea, which we'll talk about in a minute. But um, Chalcedon is significant for a number of reasons. One of them is, regrettably, a schism that takes place so that you get a whole group of Orthodox churches like the Copts in Egypt, C-O-P-T, the Coptic Church, some of the others further out in the east, the Oriental Orthodox churches. They break away so that when you have the second council of Constantinople summoned in 553, this takes us into the fifth council. Part of the objective is to reconcile people who broke out, broke away, 
but it turns into just conflict amongst Christians, like sword combat, sword conflict, like prison, like it's bad. It, this, is, this is where it's, it, these uh, next three councils and the certain events surrounding them, for me, it feels like reading Reformation history. Like I can't read it and not feel kind of cruddy. Like, oh, look at all of this very ungodly behavior. It's not representative of Christ. Hmm. So they're having duels? Oh, I guess we'll get into it. Fisticuffs or something like that. Uh, no, but there is... Uh, I mean, the, 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 the army is loosed. I mean, the army sent out. Augustine's one of the first that actually s- supports the use of a military means to suppress um, heretics, you know. And I think we've talked about this, and we'll have to do a whole... That's we, where it starts, because even for a lot of people, that's where, when you look at Catholic churches, that's where it gets sticky. Well, because and I think for, this is what we don't understand, is because we think that the Holy Spirit prizes our individual denominationalism, and he doesn't. That's heresy. Mm. I, people, I'm going to, maybe I've not, we've talked about this, but maybe I haven't been as clear as, as, I, as I ought to be. Denominationalism is heresy. Schism is a her- heretical act. And you see in the multiplied denominations that exist, multiple teachings about how to be saved, how to be a Christian, the role of the Bible, who is Jesus? All of that develops because of the, the heresy of denominationalism. And we live in a very pluralistic Christian culture, which says that it doesn't matter what kind of church you're in as long as you love Jesus. How many times, I can't tell you how many times I hear that from people. Well, the church, Christians believe the Bible, but why, if they do, why do we disagree on what the nature of, it, of what it is to even be a Christian? Why do we disagree on who Jesus is? Why, you know, so as much as you know, I want to emphasize that denominationalism, as we have presently are practicing it, is, is heresy, that is to contrast it to these guys who are going too far the other way. They're making use of the sword to, to establish church unity. Well, that's not correct either. But it shows how, how serious they perceive heresy, because here's the difference between them and us in this regard. They believe that if you are a heretic, you're going to go to hell. And hell wasn't for like five minutes. It's forever. Right. So it's better to afflict your body so that you can repent and make it to heaven and then share in the resurrection of the just. I don't agree with what they're doing here, but I'm just trying to show their perspective. Their mindset. Right. And ours is the exact opposite. Everybody's going to heaven unless you're Hitler. And maybe even then, after about a million years, you can get out. We've gone the exact other way. So. Whereas where usually you see someone trying to compare themselves to someone else who's not saved and say, well, that's what. I'll make it so that I can get in yep. because I'm not him. It's like last time I checked, you're supposed to be comparing yourself to God. But yeah, yeah, we. See, but you know, I mean, that's a we're we're all failing there, right? But the, uh, that's absolutely. where the that's where the Spirit quickens us to to conform us to the image of Jesus. So, so this, this, you know, we we're coming into you know, there's that Second Council of Constantinople in 553. The next three councils, things are going to get more and more difficult um, for two very significant historical reasons that we can't overlook. Because they, these events are as much a part of Christian history as they are world history. And there's two of them. The first one is the fall of Rome. Rome has a, basically a hundred-year descent into chaos, right? Uh, Leo, the guy I mentioned, his tome, he's also called Leo the Great because he goes out and he saves Rome from being ransacked by paying off the, the barbarian invaders, okay? But eventually, Augustine's City of God, which I, I, from what I understand, he spends seven years writing, is because Rome has been falling, so to speak. And then you get the official collapse of Rome in 476, when 
this is so by this point also the the whole Roman Empire has been split in half for quite a while. You've got the East and the West, okay? So if you say, Adam, you were in Constantinople, and someone were to say, you know, what empire do you belong to? You would have said, you're Roman. I'm a, I'm a Roman. Even though you lived in Constantinople, you still called yourself Rome because it was counted as new Rome, right? Well, when the old Rome, traditional Rome, falls in 476, this is traditionally the beginning of the Dark Ages. And it's not because people all of a sudden get stupid. It's, it's called the Dark Ages because records start to go away. You don't have the civilization starts to go away. Uh, the presence of the church in Britain, the Roman Empire in Britain, has, has long receded back into the continent. So this is, becomes important for us as Anglicans because you still have the church that's been there since the first century that's disconnected from the rest of the empire in a lot of ways that's growing and thriving. And we'll do one of these, these episodes just on that history. But Rome falls, the barbarians, right? In the East, something else happens, and it's the rise of Islam. So Islam rises. Muhammad claims to have a series of visions, mobilizes an army when he's not you know, acknowledged. He mobilizes the people. And all of Northern Africa, which has been a Christian juggernaut powerhouse, is taken over by Islam. This is what starts to take place in, in these latter three councils. So it's very difficult for even the bishops to gather together again to convene a council because you've got the collapse of civilization in the West and the rise of a very, very strong, um, I don't want to use the word utilitarian, but in Islam, you know, they, they come in and they, they, it's a sweeping takeover. You know, you, it's not just that you convert or you die. You know, in many places, they wouldn't kill you because they still needed you to work. So you could be a Christian, but you couldn't convert, and you had to pay a tax, and you couldn't be an official, and you couldn't marry outside of your... I mean, they, they re, there's a whole thing there we could do at some point on Islam. But Islam comes in, and I'll say this, at this point, and for a long time, up until just a couple hundred years ago, Islam was considered a Christian heresy. Because in Islam, the, the, the Quran acknowledges that Jesus is born of, the, of Mary, he does miracles, but he doesn't die, he gets taken into heaven, and he will come again. So it's, it's, it's counted as a, um, it was counted by the Christians of the time as a heresy because Muhammad took parts of Christianity and parts of Judaism and parts of the, the various, you know, Arabian religions that were there and created the Quran. I realized that that's very truncated and that every Islamic scholar on the planet would probably want to talk to me about that. Uh, <laughs> but just as we're talking about Christian history as it's developing, that's, that's a pretty good synopsis between in the West, the, the fall of Rome, and in the East, the rise of Islam. And in the midst of all that, what is the church doing about these other issues that are still going on, specifically around the person of Jesus? And that's what we're dealing with, uh, you know, Nicaea, the first council, all the way now to second Nicaea, the seventh council. So you, that's what we're dealing with in all seven of them. Who's Jesus? Huh. All right. So... We can see what's going on, at least as an overall, what's yeah. going to be happening. Uh, I think we've got the first council, or the fourth council overall out of the seven. Yeah, in Chalcedon. The one right. we're talking about today, the first one. Yep. Uh, which happened about 451. And then we have the events happening in between 476, where we have the fall of Rome. And then after that, we have our next council, which is at Constantinople in 1553. Yeah, yeah this is called by Justinian. Yep. Constantinople too. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. 
or second sequel. Yeah, the sequel. <laughs> these are they're getting wild. It's like the Fast and the Furious. They're like on fifteen. You know, I think that's what they're on. That's what it feels like with these councils. They just keep going up and up and up. Well, and these are like the seven ecumenical. If you want to break down actual church councils, the number of councils that have been happening across the church, east and west, is pretty staggering because it was a means of of settling issues and staying in touch with each other. You know, there's no like uh, email or phone calls. You know, I don't know if they even have carrier pigeons yet, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's not it's not quite the same kind of communication. That's when you know it's bad when you're like, man, I really wish I had a carrier pigeon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> In uh, second Constantinople is monothelitism. Okay, monothelitism. So there's that word one, you know, singular thelitism. So one will. So they began to teach. Okay, well, Jesus is fully God, and he's fully man, but he's only got one will. Well, wait a second. How can he only have one will? And so they would go back and forth in the scriptures, you know, appealing to things like when he's in the garden, and they would argue with each other. Is monothelitism at the second one or the third one? Constantinople. Both. Okay. It's both. So you're going to see them. Here's the thing about some of the councils. They believe they've settled the issue because they put out a creed or they put out some canons, some rules. Then they discover in the ensuing decades, or maybe even a century, that that's not what happened. Or okay. it happened but created another series of questions along the same thought, so they reconvened to settle it again. Okay, because even trying to research this thing, and I'll let people know when I go to read, like, I kept finding like this, this issue like existing here and there. It's like, why don't, when did it start? Which one? But it's like, it's a running idea of it. That's what. Yeah. So, so it's, 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 that's why. If you go to research yourself, you'll find that happened to you, I imagine, as well. Right. Unless think, I'm just really stupid. Think about, think about, do, no, think about <laughs> doctrine like words, right? And, or, or uh, with shades of meaning. And this, and the, here's what I mean. Let's say that, um, think of the color blue, right? So what color is the sky in the middle of the day when there's no clouds? Blue, I hope. Blue. If you look at the ocean, on any given day, what color is it usually? Pretty blue. It's blue. But are those the same kind of blue? I mean, not really. They could be different, but... How about a blue t-shirt? Or oh, then no, no. Right? So even when we use the, a word to describe a color, there are shades that are implied based upon what we're talking about. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah? And so doctrine, and the, spe- the specific use of a term has shades of meaning, and the only way you get rid of the various shades is to get more specific in your articulation. And so what you've got going on in the councils is more and more specific articulations so that there's no misunderstanding. Okay. All right. And that, that's an important thing for us because people will say this, why, are we, why do you teach doctrine? Why not just believe in Jesus? Well, that immediately should give us a red flag. Who are you talking about? Because the church didn't figure out who he was uh, and have a, 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 a shared language to describe who he was for centuries. So if you're talking about him, well, then you should understand why we're teaching doctrine. But if you think that Jesus is something else, and see, this is, this is where it gets more, we need to be more specific. Are you talking about the Mormon Jesus? Well, no, no, I'm not talking. No, and, I, and so then I ask, well, what's the difference? Well, I don't know, but they're not the same. Well, what? You, you see what I mean? People yeah. do that. They'll, they'll say, why well, teach these things? Well, because God's revealed them and given them to the church. That's one of the things that we need to ensure that we're doing. 
It makes me think about different things in life too, where it's like, you want to make sure someone's pretty specific that you're talking about the same thing, mm-hmm. like different issues. I'm trying to think of an example. Um, it's even like the same thing with even like a car or something. Like you drive a Honda, well, what kind of Honda do you drive? Why does that matter? What do you mean, why does it matter? There's a difference between a Civic and an Accord. Yeah. Where it's like, or a motorcycle. Yeah. They make motorcycles too. Yeah, that's true. It's like, you have to be more specific. Like, we care a lot of, like, whether we realize it or not, we care about specifics of things. We do. So why wouldn't we care about this? Why wouldn't it share over in that same way? Why would right. it be more, oh, well, this, it doesn't, like, it should matter. Well, we should be more specific on these things to talk about them, but. Oh, the, oh I'm telling you, you know, when, when the eyes glaze over, people are like, oh, I'm checking out of this conversation. This isn't important. And it's either because they need to get to the buffet or because they think that unless there's an enthusiasm, it's not true. And both of those are wrong. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, so I, the language, let me, let me say this about even as they're becoming more precise with their language, they're also creating boundaries because there's a recognition that there's a whole lot of mystery here and we cannot articulate all of it. So let's, let's because if you do start to articulate, you're going to go into error. If you over articulate, you go into error. So the, the councils and the creeds, are giving us necessary boundaries to say that everything within this sphere is fair game. Everything outside of that is foul. Mm. And this is where this, this is how we see these valid discussions relating to Jesus, who he is, to the Trinity, and then how that translates directly over to what is a church, what is a sacrament, what is it to be a Christian, as opposed to you know, loosey goosey man with, with terminology. Well, I'm a Christian. I'm a, I'm a bishop. I'm a, I'm a, you know, third apostle from the second moon of, of Titan or something. I mean, you know, you, you've <laughs> yeah. got, uh, we've got to be specific with, with our terms. And this is what we're seeing here. That's why, like, even the, the word monothelitism, what? Well, it's a heresy that's condemned by the church. Jesus has a will. He has two. There's, he's fully divine. And he's fully human, but he's one person. I know, we have to think about it. Yeah, I'm chewing on it. You chew on that about, as it relates to him, and then you start to extrapolate that out to other, other things. So let me, let me give an example. Is the church, what is the church? Is the church human, or is the church divine? Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the church is fully human, and the church is fully divine. Well, hold on now, Daryl. The church is just, a, no. Who is the head of the church? Jesus. Jesus. Yes, he's the head. So is he fully man or is he fully God? Yes. <laughs> what if I said no? No, I, I think yes. <laughs> so he's fully God, he's fully man, he's the head of the church. The head is not detached from the body. The church is fully human and fully divine. It doesn't make the, each individual member of the church God somehow. The church, we, we, have, we have specific theological doctrine that, that shapes that out as well. But are we sharing or participating in the divine nature? Peter flat out says we are in his letter. So when we start to think about the church as the, the presence of Christ, the totus Christus, the whole Christ, Christ present in the earth today is in and through his church, then our entire concept of what it is to be a Christian and to be involved in the church changes. So it's not just a voluntary club that I associate with and pay my country club dues to, so they've got lights and air conditioning when I show up. No, this is the new creation. God's redemptive work in the world is the church. What about when the church is wrong and it does evil? You know what? 
here's my. <sighs> and the people, the people that say that stuff to me are Christians. And it just goes to show me they've not really spent time before the Lord. Because if they did, and they set their heart to understand him, they wouldn't be as opposed to the church as they are. But let me give an answer to that critique. The church has spots. The church has wrinkles. And the scripture says it. He's returning for a church that doesn't have spot or wrinkle, meaning she does right now. It's not perfect because it's human. And the process of our sanctification, or as the, as the, Eastern, would, the Eastern Church would say, our theosis, our becoming divinized, our becoming more like God, is that as we are in our natural bodies, growing more in holiness and in virtue to correspond to what he's already done for us spiritually by virtue of baptism in the Eucharist. But we could take this whole principle further out and talk about the sacraments. What are the sacraments? Are they bare symbols that reflect something, or are they, are they when they're um, moved upon by the Spirit and by the words of institution, changed into what they signify? You see? So th- these are the kinds of things that these, these discussions in these councils directly address for us. That's why we're going to wrap up our discussion with the councils, because it's some, we are going to start talking about these other things that merit entire episodes. Hmm. Well, so... And again, so what do they think about monothelitism? One will is condemned. Interesting history here. Before this was condemned, the Bishop of Rome, Honorius, I believe it was Honorius I, is said to have agreed with it. Now, this is an important deal later on in Christian history because when the, uh, the papacy will claim infallibility, right? That whatever the Pope teaches from his chair is infallible. This, and this is something agreed upon by East and West, this is the only instance that they have where there's something that they reckon as an actual heretical stand where a Bishop of Rome um, stood for it. Like he, where the Bishop of Rome took a stand for something heretical. It's this event with monothelitism. But the, the, the West's argument around it is to say, well, the council hadn't ma- met yet to decide that it was. <laughs> um, now, for Protestants, you know, most of the folks that, you know, the circles were swimming in, ah, the Pope's been heretics ever since 15, you know, or 1200. I mean, you know, so it's, it's a whole different mindset. But when you, when you look at it from that other side, um, this monothelitism is a big deal in church history, even though it's not a big deal on the street or in the pew today. And that, by the way, is the next two councils. So councils five and six. Yeah. Like we were talking about before, I was getting confused. Yeah, they're de- that's what they're dealing with. So that's in 50, oh, five, 553 AD. Right. Yep. So now we're jumping into Constantinople. Three. Part three. Yeah. So this is the third council in Constantinople, 680 to 681. Yep. And this one's called by Constantine. Not the OG, though. No, this not is number, been, that's a long time ago at this point. This is number four. <laughs> that, that is as the, so that Constantine the Fourth summoning this sixth sixth ecumenical council is further apart in history from Constantine the First than we are from the founding of the United States. Ah, that's a good perspective. Yeah, there's a whole okay. lot that's changed yeah. in the world. There's a whole lot that's changed. So Constantinople three was called by Constantine four for the sixth ecumenical council. There you go. Simple, yeah. It's easy. That's, that's right. You got it. <laughs> um, 
I think this one they're still talking about. It's like we were just literally talking yeah, yeah. about the monotheism. And then we have the, uh, I don't know, the mono enigism. Right. So the Eastern Church right. starts to really develop a, a distinction between the energies and the essence, divine energy and divine essence. We don't have a lot of the same language. We have the same distinctions, but we don't have a lot of the same language in the Western tradition as it's developing. But in the East, you have it, and I would recommend people who've never heard about it, study it. There's a difference between God's energies and God's essence. And how, what does that look like? How does, how does God do that? Um, and all of those things are very, very important for the spiritual life, like your prayer life, your devotional life, um, your contemplative life, how you're communicating and, and connecting with God. I mean, by this point in Christian history, there are monasteries that have been operating for hundreds of years. Um, Christians at this at this part in history here would not recognize. I, I'm going to guess probably 80 percent of the churches they would walk into today, they wouldn't recognize them as 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 a, as a church. They would they wouldn't know they were in a church. And it's not just because of the energies and the essence distinction. They just wouldn't get it. Like, how are you not living a life of prayer? Why are you not, you know, genuflecting or kneeling or stretching out before the Eucharist? What you know? Why why are you not? you know, kissing the hands of the priests after they're ordained. Why are you, I mean, there's so much stuff that's happened and that's, that's fully entrenched as part of the church life, as, as the church's life, that today is completely foreign. I mean, the idea that, we, that they would find a group of Christians walking around with Bibles in their pockets that they claim to, to believe, but they don't actually know what it says. I mean, there's, there's a lot here. Um, and, I, and I'm only bringing those things up, not to condemn the people or anybody that's listening, but to point out we want to quickly jump back and say, energies and essences, what are they talking about? No, my friends, they are the ones who are actually educated and entrenched in a Christian culture, a Christian church, and it's particularly Eastern. We are the ones who are in a post-post-Christian world who can't even get Christians to recognize they shouldn't be sleeping around before they get married. Mm. I'm not saying the church then was perfect by any stretch. There's a reason there's the council, okay? Right. But We've got to stop looking back at them and saying, well, because those words are, and we're, make, we're making light of it, I know, but yeah. the, those words and those times and the count, all that's kind of hooey, and none of that relates to me. Again, if there's no church in Christian history, there's no Bible or doctrine for anybody today to decide they don't want to believe or to believe. Let's put it that way. Hope that's not too harsh, guys. I'm sorry if it sounds too harsh. You're just to love people. Oh, yeah. okay. okay. I think I'm just not feeling the love. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> not feeling the love the way I want to feel it. Oh. Well. <laughs> okay. Okay, so you think we're ready to go to the next council? Yeah, we or, can go to number seven. I think I think we're... I, I think we got a good understanding of what's happening, what's kind of going on in the time period. Yeah, we could go into lots of the details and lots of the various canons that they, they pass, but um, there's a reason that we kind of go with Lancelot Andrews because the further out in some of these canons you get into, the less bearing they have because we're not in an Eastern empire. We're not even in the Holy Roman empire anymore. So some of these things are, are very contextual, very situation, time and space specific. Okay. Right. The councils, like their decisions aren't so much. The seventh council, some Anglicans don't like it. They flat out reject it. Um, and we'll talk about that in detail in a second. But going out to the seven and then zeroing in on the first four, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that, even appealing to the canons that they pass 
and their importance, okay, by and large. And then looking at these last three, two Constantinopoles and an, and a Nicaea. So we start with Nicaea and we end with Nicaea as far as the seven go. Wrapping it up nice. Yes. So this is Nicaea, the sequel, uh, in 787. This is called by Constantine once again, uh, but not the same one. It's Constantine the sixth. All right. What a name. And then also Empress Irene. I was confused yeah. by that, so I don't really... Yeah, so the empresses, the uh, Constantine's wife, the empresses were very involved and lots of times in the Eastern uh, Church. The emperors were involved in the Divine Liturgy. Okay. Uh, I believe they dressed as deacons, if I remember correctly. Very, very involved. And we have to remember, again, we live in a time of separation of church and state. They did not then. So the emperors took it. They realized as Christians, baptized, confirmed Christians, it was their responsibility to maintain the unity of the empire. Part of that unity was the unity within the church. Not that they would press the church, not that they would decide for the church, but they would summon the church together for council and synod uh, discussions, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a huge, huge event that takes place between the sixth and the seventh councils, and that is this controversy with icons. Mm. So the Muslims are anti-icon. They're anti-image. No images. None. What is the, what is the Ten Commandments? You shall, you shall not make for yourself any graven idols. And so anything, statues, pictures, all of that stuff gets destroyed. There's a council that they call, and they say it's okay. And they, st- and they go through, and they start burning, looting, destroying. Think of what ISIS did in, the, in recent history in Iraq, except these are Christians doing this to other Christians. So they convene the Second Council of Nicaea, and then they come down and they say, no. John of Damascus is the last, he's, he's counted as the last early church father in the late 700s in the East. It's John of Damascus, who, by the way, lives under Muslim rule. It's, Damasc- it's, his, um, it's his theology that gets picked up and endorsed as, at, the second at the seventh ecumenical council. And basically, here's what they say. You must, this is why there's a problem, you must make images. You must make icons. And they don't, like, they, they press it so that you have to do it. And this is why you have a lot of Anglicans take issue with it. Because do we have any command in Scripture that says you have to? No. No. No, not that I know no. of. Now, there are some that take issue with it because it, it, it says you should make them, forget the, the command that you have to, but the fact that it's being done because they lift up the commandment, you should not make for yourself an engraven image. The biblical response to that argument is the Bible itself, because the very book of Exodus with the Ten Commandments, it says not to make any graven images, commands build cherubim this way, build the tabernacle this way, make the, scar- make the yarn and the tapestries from scarlet and, and, and purple. And, you know, so you've got all of these other things that are co- you're com- they're commanded to make that are representations of heaven. But there's no statue of God in the law. When you come into the New Covenant, John of Damascus is going to argue that the representations of Jesus are not representations of his divine essence, because there's no way to capture that. And he'll argue that Christ is the icon, which is the Greek term that's used. Christ is the icon of God, and God forbade the the creation of an image in the Old Covenant so that when he decided to appear, that's his image, that's Jesus. And so the use of 
pictures, icons, statues, all of these other symbols, if you want to use that term, and that doesn't quite capture the, the gravity of what they are, because they're not painted, they're written, their icons are written, even though they look like a picture. Um, all of that promotes worship, so they command that it be done. One of the problems that happens is when this, this decision gets translated into Latin and sent over to Charlemagne, um, when it makes it into the West, this is towards the rise of the Holy Roman Empire. That's, that's hundreds of years after Rome has fallen, so now we get a, a, a strong papacy medieval popes, and there's a whole history here. Um, the Holy Roman Empire gets a copy of this, and they don't acknowledge it. They don't receive it. And we're told the reason they don't acknowledge it is because they get a bad translation. They get a faulty translation of what the Seventh, seventh Ecumenical Council said, so that they are reading this thinking that the East has said we need to worship statues, which is not what they said. That's the Seventh Council. And out of that comes a whole articulation for language and doctrine around the use of images and icons that is pretty agreed upon now by everybody, unless, again, you're going with a more more um, Puritan, maybe. Like, if you're going for a more, like, hyper-Puritanical approach to say there can't be any pictorial representations, not even crosses, you know? Or you'll have people, like, with shades of it, they'll be like, well, you can have a cross, but you can't have a crucifix because there's a body on it, you know? But people have been using flanograph pictures of Jesus for so long now that a lot of these things have kind of disappeared um, in, in modern thought. But the, um, this, this last council really opens that up and, and even explains it for us, you know. So you're saying I shouldn't have a picture of Jesus in my house? I think this is the kind of thing, <laughs> the Seventh Ecumenical Council would, would say that you need them in your church. You need them in the, in the church building because it's a sacred space. And your whole life needs to be consumed with the images and pictures. It's reminiscent of the Torah, of the law of Moses, where you have the scriptures bound to your forehead and to your arm and on your doorpost. So it's, but people couldn't read, right? So it's reminiscent of these, this icon, here's Christ in his glory, or, or Christ's suffering, or the Blessed Virgin, the Theotokos, or, or the saints, you know, who are gathered round about. Because by this point, um, well, long before this, well back into very, very early Christian history, there's already specific devotion to particular saints that, that's been going on for a long time. And so when you get down here to the Seventh Council, I mean, this is the, we're heading into the High Middle Ages at this point. We're, we're real close to the High Middle Ages in the West. And um, the East is, is, well, they still got about 700 years or so before they'll collapse to the, to the Ottomans altogether. But, you know, you see this coming out of these councils. And I can't help but look at these latter councils and look, you, you mentioned it, uh, talking about the fall of Rome, but really you start to see the implications of it. So even down to the misinterpretation or not being able to communicate about the Seventh Council, um, because already you could see where the cultures were gapping, and the language is also, like you're talking about, like known, understood language, let alone, even if they are speaking the same language, what, are the, what is the dialect? Right. Because they're so separated, and so you get to see really the, the fall of Rome and what that does to infrastructure, what it does to structure, and what it does to language throughout the empire. And it becomes very apparent in what is happening in these latter councils. Uh, you can just see the miscommunication. And I think it, it in many ways makes us take for granted uh, what we have today. 
Um, but I think a lot of these conversations, if they were having it in a united empire like they were before, I think these issues could have been resolved. I think it could have been resolved through communication, but because it was so difficult, it just didn't happen. Right, right. You, um, and you've got the political, because Rome falls and has basically fallen for so many hundreds of years, it, you, you, it rises and falls. Let me put it this way. You know, Gregory the Great, when he becomes the Bishop of Rome in 590, talks about the, the city being like a, a ship with rotted planks, like a rotted wood, you know? Um, so you've got this collapse, a semi-rise, collapse, semi-rise. You've got that going on for quite a while until you get into about the year 800 with Charlemagne when he becomes the Holy Roman Emperor. He's crowned, I believe it's Christmas Day, by the Pope. Charlemagne's not happy about it, by the way. But he's got the Holy Roman Empire in the West, like think Germany, France, the Spain, these areas, right? Holy Roman Empire. Well, the Spain is the... the in Spain, you've got, um, is it the Visigoths? In Spain, you've got the Arians, by the way. That Arian heresy that Jesus is, that's still going on. It's still around. It's got its own bishops, its own priests, its own deacons. It's got its own church structure. It's got its own missionaries. So a lot of these barbarian tribes that came in and wiped out Rome, they were, many of them are Arians. They, they were heretical Christians. Anyway, Holy Roman Empire is established. Well, what about the other Roman Empire in Constantinople? They're the Roman Empire. So you've got the, this political conflict between the two empires, both claiming to be Roman. You know, so there's a lot of that back and forth. So when you see the official schism between East and West in 1054, between the Eastern Church and the Western Church, and that is when the, um, the Bishop of Rome and the Bishop of Constantinople, the Pope and the Patriarch, kind of have it out, excommunicating each other. There's a whole history there, and I don't know that we're ever going to do an episode on that, but we could. Um, that, that actual split has been centuries in development because they are growing so wildly apart, and they're not maintaining a lot of the same union that they had. Um, so it's a big deal today that those, those mutual excommunications have been lifted. Uh, Pope Francis recently sent bones, some bones of St. Peter, to the Patriarch of Constantinople. Constantinople. So there's a lot of good ecumenical reconciliation that's been going on between East and West now for, for a long time. Um, but it's, you, you watch these seven councils, you watch how they, they come down on these issues of Jesus and the canons they have to make, the rules they've got to make for the whole church, and how those things become bedrock for the rest of us, for all other Christians. You know, Rome will build on these because, that, like I said at the beginning of this, they've got about 21 councils that they count, like Vatican I, Vatican II. Uh, Council of Trent, some other ones, you know, the Lateran councils where they, um, you know, uh, define transubstantiation, these kinds of things. You know, in the East, it's different because the East starts to break apart and there's no centralized church leader. There's no pope in the, in the Orthodox churches, but you get very strong Orthodox churches that arise in Russia and, and well, I'll just use modern language, Russia, Ukraine, Serbia, you know, they go on out into, into China, you know, these different places, these Orthodox, Orthodox bodies are rising. So a lot of that's happening uh, all the way up through this, this period. So let me, let me uh, bring it around then and talk about these three things that come out of Nicaea, the last council of Nicaea. And these are the way that they delineate icons, okay? The way, like how you reverence or acknowledge an icon. And this becomes specific because this is going to tie into our discussion on the communion of the saints and the Blessed Virgin Mary when we get into that 
those topics, all right? Um, here's the three words. Latria, hyperdulia, and dulia. Latria, hyperdulia, and dulia. So we get into this distinction. God alone is worshipped and adored. Let me put it this way. God alone is adored. Only God is adored. Worship, properly speaking, means worth-ship, something that has value. So, you know, you could say in English that you worship the queen. It doesn't mean you're making her divine. It just means that you count her more worthy of your praise and your accolades than you do somebody in the street. It's a, it's a, it has, a, it has to do with value. Adoration is something that's given to the divine in classic English usage, okay? Just classically speaking. Only God gets adoration. Only God gets worship in that sense. Only God gets latria, okay? The next term is veneration. You would translate it in, in English as veneration. And you've got two classifications, two kinds of this. You've got a general veneration, and then you've got like a, a, an exalted form, a hyper form, and that's dulia. Dulia, okay? So what the, the, the fathers at the Nicaea, second Nicaea say is that God gets the worship, Mary and the saints get veneration, meaning we value them, we esteem them, and in this case, they're directly, they've been talking to them for centuries. And again, I can't go into to why until, because it's going to take an hour to do that. But um, they, they preserve this distinction. And it's this mistranslation that gets back to the West, where they think that somehow in the East, they're ascribing value like this to, like that they're worshiping the saints. They're adoring the saints or Mary or something like that, like idolatry, right? And that's not what they're doing. They're, they're making these categories of distinction so that when you walk up to an icon and you kiss it, the idea is that even though your lips are touching that physical icon, your heart is overflowing with respect, with appreciation, with thanksgiving for the saint, or if it's an icon of Christ, in adoration for Christ. And this is important because people who don't know these distinctions will look at those practices and they'll say, oh, they're worshiping statues. They're worshiping icons. Listen, look, let's go to a ball game. Every time the national anthem comes on, what have Americans classically done? If you're a man, what do you take off your head? Your hat. Your hat. And where's your hand go? Over your heart. Look at this big uproar uh, in the past two or three years for all the guys that are kneeling during the national anthem, right? And so then you've got some folks like, well, it doesn't matter. And other folks like, yes, it matters. It matters so much. It's our country. It represents our country. That right there is a perfect example of in a lesser state, but a good illustration of the difference between the way the fathers of Nicaea are delineating worship that goes to God alone and the physical gestures and ritual and symbol that goes into the honoring of the whole church with the icons and the images. And I know that's something that uh, for me and my, my background growing up was very much so like, oh, we don't, we don't do that. You know, we don't look like it was just viewed as a negative thing, but coming in and studying a lot of that and seeing the difference and uh, what is truly being communicated, uh, I realized how ignorant I was in my view. Now, to, to, to read this, to educate yourself and be like, I disagree with that, that's another thing. But that is not 80%, 90% of the people that I was communicating with about these things. It was, we were all ignorant. We were just making given our opinion where it didn't really matter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
when you go back and you read it and you look at what they're doing and how they're defining it, then it makes a ton of sense because none of these people are trying to disobey scripture. As a matter of fact, they are steeped and, and, and swimming in scripture, even in their regular speech with one another, far more than, than most people are in the church today. I don't mean like the, the fathers of the council and the various monks, John of Damascus, that's what these guys are doing. And so now they're taking and they're synthesizing the teaching of Scripture in a way that makes sense. So as far as Nicaea goes, is Jesus the perfect icon of God the Father? He is. So why can't then we make a representation of him to show our worship and our devotion? And you can appeal as some—I some, uh, know J.I. Packer didn't, didn't like uh, pictures of Christ at all. I mean, he would appeal directly to the, to the Ten Commandments. Do not make any graven image. You know, so you get a very strong Puritan emphasis uh, within portions of Anglicanism specifically that say no. Um, and as much as I have deep appreciation for a lot of the Puritans and a lot of what they had to say and do, on this one, I'm, I'm not going to go with them. I'm going to go with Nicaea. But neither am I going to go with the Second Council of Nicaea so much so to say that you have to do it. Um, because I can't find a scriptural command that says you have to do it. I do see that the scripture says obey the church. So if the church decides that the church is going to reaffirm Nicaea 2 and that we all have to do this, well, then that's a different discussion. But that's not, as far as I know, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm missing some information here. As far as I know, that's not happened. And I, I think it's interesting. A lot of the objections that I've heard also were like, we don't know what Jesus looks like, or we don't know dot, 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 dot. And uh, I remember uh, a conversation I had with uh, you, Father Daryl, during the time when you were doing your series on the saints. Uh, and I said the same thing. I'm like, what is up with this picture, dot, 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 like a uh, stereotypical mainstream evangelical, at the, that, the way I was thinking. And just it's it's not about a hyper realistic representation. You know, a lot of these things. It's the symbolism and the things that it makes you think of with that saint. So I think even that being added on to that in these things in, in addition, it's like we're not like it's it's to remind us and push us and to uh, encourage uh, when looking at these things and remembering the different things. It's not even about even having the one hundred percent accurate image of yeah. That I mean, so in. Think about an icon, an Eastern icon of Mary. She's always holding Jesus, and he has the face of an adult male. Nothing about that is actually... <laughs> like that's, it's not meant to be a, a picture that says, oh, look at this young woman with her little baby. Let's make sure that they can stay out of the cold. Isn't it sad that he had to be born that way in Bethlehem? That's not what they're saying. That's not the point with the icon, right? Or there will be... In other pictures, there are things that are... Uh, grossly uh, exaggerated in size or shrunken down because of what they're emphasizing. Or there's icon, you know, they have an icon and there's like a wall, a semi-wall. And that's supposed to refer to the, the, the person writing the icon as saying, this happened inside. If there is no wall, they're saying this happened outside. So you've got rules that go into this. This isn't just like a devotional painting. And those are fine. I'm not, I guess those at, by any stretch. Uh, those are great. I want to recommend anybody who's got a gift, ask the Lord for, for some, for some uh, inspiration. But when it comes to the icons themselves, there's rules to this. It's so much so that even when you're depicting the Blessed Virgin or St. Peter or St. Paul or the angels, you always de depict them with the same kind of hair or the same kind of garment. Or the, In Peter's case, he's often got keys, obviously. 
Paul's often got a sword because he's beheaded. Uh, many of the icons, the the a martyr is actually holding the thing that killed them. That was the thing that to me that was a uh, kind of the most uh, I don't know crude. I'm like that's a, like you're gonna draw this person with the thing that killed them. But then again, I guess we have pictures of the crucifix. So and that's why know. because what we are seeing with the martyrs and the icon of the martyrs is here. Here's how this person was united to Jesus in a very profound and 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 some sometimes oftentimes horrific way you know and let's emulate that faith in our daily living by not living according to the passions of the flesh but to the spirit even when i think of like even art itself what is it it's just illustration of like an expression like i feel like people kind of when they get caught up in that thing like white jesus or something like that like i don't i mean i don't if you had asked me if i thought jesus was white i probably would say no i don't think so but but like um I think of like even different artworks that we see today where it's like, I just looked up, I was just making sure I got the name right, Van Gogh and the Scream. Yeah. It's like, why is that picture something <laughs> that's good? It's like, well, it doesn't look anything like a real person. Yeah, but it's the point is it's supposed to express something. Right. And of course there is art and you have that debate of like what people say is good art or not. But the reason why you see these things drawn like that and even the icons like that, where it's like, it helps you see an expression or come up with an idea or a mindset. So when you see it, you are thinking of something at least that it's relating back to or an expression of. Yeah. So when you see something like Mary is pure, like it's supposed to do that. Like it's supposed to make you remember, remember like, ah, uh, yes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. she's something different, you know, like at least from my understanding, that's how I view it. But yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's controversial. I don't know. No, that that's, that's, I hope that's not. But. No, this, so I mean, they differentiate her amongst the saints because she is the Theotokos. Well, right. well, why is that important? Who else is the mother of God? Nobody else in history gets to share that. And I, and I, and I hear people, you know, say back, well, didn't Jesus say that more blessed to, you know, to be the person who obeys him than to be his mother when they said, blessed is the, is the womb that bore you? Christ isn't denigrating his mother. He's elevating the church as part of his body. We've, we've got to get rid of our anti-Mary evangelicalism. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Well, and I, I just, yeah. yeah I, I can't just say that uh, right. you know, Mary obeyed too, so she did. she's got both. She, so how about that? Yeah. <laughs> now she she's did. even better than what right. she was before. So I, yeah. And, and, and somebody, I've had some people already tell me they're waiting for us to do an episode on Mary, and we will. Um, but when you're looking at, let me, let me kind of bring it back to the councils. When you're looking at these seven councils, we start with Nicaea, we end with Nicaea. We begin with language to express how God is three persons in one being. And we end with, we need to make pictorial representations so that we make sure that we are rightly worshiping and honoring him. And in the middle of all that is the church getting very specific about how Jesus is human and God and the creeds that are developed as a result of it. Very, very important things here. The things that aren't discussed in the councils or in, in this time frame when they're meeting, but are already thoroughly developed. Uh, some they they develop a little bit more, but their practice the practices like the apostolic ministry that's already been long in place. The scripture is agreed upon, but that's that's what they've been using right to, as their as their source text right. Um, the sacraments fully like there's no new sacraments that get added right. Nothing like that's happening. We've got the these these seven classic sa- sacraments. You've got other rites, you know. So if you let's go classic. Uh, um, semi-classic Anglican for a second. The two gospel sacraments and the five commonly called sacraments are the sacraments of the church. Then you've got all these other sacramental things going on. All of this stuff 
is so thoroughly and pervasively established in the early church. And this is why we wanted to talk about the councils, is because where are you going to go and have a conversation with Christians today where any of this makes any sense to them? Because they think that God is in heaven to help them get over their anxiety. Now, he wants us to be free from that. Don't misunderstand me. But we've, we've got it all backwards. No, I think it's, I think it's pretty well said, honestly. Um, I think we are running out of time. And I, I, I mean, I'll keep going, but I think we hit these topics pretty well today at least all these different issues that were going on and more so yeah um we don't i don't have i didn't receive any questions this week i don't know if you received any uh questions let me think no i don't think so just uh people wanting us to to talk about mary the saints i think there was one other one but we'll get to that because right you know that's not something we'd, we'd phase into today we just by, by going out this far into Christian history, you know, we didn't go up to the Great Schism in, in 1054, but we've, we've gone into, we've touched on what's going on East and West all the way up until about the year 800. We didn't, 800 is, is Charlemagne, you know, uh, and, and by that point, you've got, Christianity's more than established at this point. Right. Um, Christendom is established at this point. A Christianized culture You've got massive apostasy and re-evangelization that's already taken place multiple times in the West. I mean, there's a whole world that has arisen and fallen multiple times, at, you know, in these first 800 years. And that we have to take that time and those events, those epochs seriously, or we will fall into the also easy sin of reading and discerning our day as the important day. And we will not see ourselves as stewards who have to preserve what God's given us, but we, are, we'll, we will see ourselves as innovators moved upon by the Holy Spirit to keep the church relevant. There's no faster way to kill the work of God than to try to make it relevant in that, in that worldly sense. Amen. I, I agree with you on that. I think that's, uh, in my opinion, that's a lot of problems that start to exist in the world when, with that. But yeah definitely well i think that's going to be it for this week um again those send in questions if you have them um you can send them to send them to me daryl d-a-r-r-y-l at ascension a-s-c-e-n-s-i-o-n w-v dot org i mean or you could send them to me too i guess caleb ridgeway at gmail.com c-a-l-e-b-r-i-d-g-e-w-a-y Um, Again, thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you all next week.